Welcome to Talking Teaching. Hi, I'm Genevieve Costigan and welcome to our fifth season of Talking Teaching. So many topics covered and so many more to come. This time around, we're examining the subject of child mental health and the role that teachers and primary schools can play in helping to identify children who may be struggling and the ways that teachers, schools and families can work together to get timely assistance for children. An innovative program developed by the Murdoch Children's Research Institute, the University of Melbourne and the Victorian Department of Education, called the Mental Health in Primary Schools program, aims to address mental health problems in children before the transition to adolescence. Providing support, education and social and emotional learning skills in primary school may reduce the prevalence of mental health problems in high school and beyond. First up, Professor Jim Waterston, Dean of the Melbourne Graduate School of Education, speaks to Professor Frank Oberclade, a pivotal figure in the development of this new program. Professor Oberclade was the Foundation Director of the Centre for Community Child Health at the Royal Children's Hospital in Melbourne for over 25 years. He was also co-chair of the expert group who worked on the National Children's Mental Health and Wellbeing Strategy, a strategy that may well be a world first. Jim then speaks to Dr Georgia Dawson, who is a research fellow at the Melbourne Graduate School of Education. Georgia is leading this mental health in primary school program, known as MIPS, and she discusses how this program works in practice in schools. Over to you, Jim. Today, I'd like to welcome along um, Frank Oberclade. Um, Frank, it, it's great to talk to you about a, a range of issues, um, and, and certainly we're talking about the mental health space and uh, uh, the mental health uh, in primary schools program in particular. But before we get on to that, I'm, I'm really interested in um, what we've learned from the Royal Commission into Victoria's mental health system in terms of, um, some, of the, some of the interaction that we need to have in the school space to um, make sure that we can deal with the many issues that we're finding that are arising through uh, this COVID period and, and previously. Well, perhaps I could go back a little bit um, further before the Victorian Royal Commission uh, was conceived, and uh, I sometimes say that I've got a very impressive CV of failed advocacy in the child mental health space because for so long it was just so hard to get onto radar screens, and I think it was crowded out by adult mental health and then more recently by adolescent mental health, and for a long time we thought kids were okay, and then when adolescent mental health got going, uh, it was thought that we would automatically address the needs of children. So child and adolescent mental health became the one word. And a lot of us had difficulty in saying, look, child mental health is a different country completely. So child mental health was very much the elephant in the room. Um, and what's happened in the last three or four years is that's changed. The elephant has left the room. And I think the three things that uh, have given child mental health momentum is first of all the Productivity Commission, uh, then the Victorian Royal Commission, and then the National Strategy, which I co-chaired and you're on the expert advisory group. And all three uh, inquiries, commissions, uh, identified schools as a very important platform. And uh, it's no surprise. The surprise is it took so long to figure that out. Um, but I think the culture of schools has changed. As a, as a non-educator looking at schools, if you would have asked teachers a decade ago about child mental health, they would have downplayed it as 
uh, an issue and that certainly wouldn't have thought it was their responsibility. And that's changed uh, dramatically in the last decade. So now if you ask teachers about child mental health, they'll identify it as really important to learning. And what's more, they'll say it's part of their responsibility to at least identify children who are struggling and try and put in place some scaffolding or some support for them. All this has been uh, amplified by COVID, of course. So um, child mental health has been identified as a major uh, issue, sometimes um, thought of as the second wave. You know, the first wave was uh, infection. The second curve is very much child mental health. And people have uh, understood, the media's understood, parents have understood that child mental health, not just because of COVID, you know, the understandable anxiety and concern and difficulty with home learning. But when they go back to school, there are ongoing issues around child mental health and difficulty transitioning back. So I think child mental health is very much on politicians' radar screens and very much part of the discussion uh, in newspapers and the media uh, and parents as well. The notion of working in schools is uh, really welcomed but I guess school teachers uh, are wondering uh, what's their job and what isn't their job. What, what's the job of a, of, a, of a professional and what's what's the job of a teacher? Yeah, that's a good question. I'm not a teacher, so I need to be uh, careful entering this territory. But um, schools are such a natural place. Well, first of all, it's universal. Everyone goes to school, so it's non-stigmatising. Secondly, uh, trained professionals are observing these children in the classroom on the playground, the way they interact, the way they cope with stress. So they're just skilled observers. So uh, what we, what I expect of teachers is, uh, at a minimum, they identify kids that are struggling. And I think if you go to any classroom and you say to uh, the classroom teacher, tell me the kids that you're concerned about, tell me the kids that are struggling, either with their social, emotional health or in any other way, they'll identify those kids with 100% accuracy, you know, better than any screening test. Then the problem traditionally has been what to do about them. And I certainly don't expect, and we don't expect teachers uh, to be mental health professionals. That's not their training. So at a minimum, what I see as teachers' role is to have the confidence to identify kids that are struggling. And then what's needed after that is a system within the school to to address the needs of those children. And that's where uh, MIPS, mental health in primary schools, hopefully increases the capacity of the schools and teachers to do that. One of the issues that I think is prominent across the teaching profession is the language that we use when we talk about mental health and wellbeing issues. And I've heard you talk about a continuum of language. Can you, can you sort of um, develop a little bit more on that? I think as I've progressed my paediatric career, I've been more and more concerned about uh, DSM-type diagnoses, you know, this uh, children having to reach a threshold before they get a diagnosis and therefore are eligible for services. And we also know that language uh, is a stigma. Lots of parents uh, uh, won't admit to themselves their child has a, quote, unquote, anxiety disorder or ADHD, so they'll put off getting help. And we also know the education sector and the health sector use different language completely. There's no common communication. So uh, educators use terms like resilience and uh, capacity and well-being and so on. And the health profession tends to use DSM 
diagnoses like ADHD and anxiety disorder and conduct disorder, etc. So uh, I was really interested and have been interested for a long time in sort of getting rid of this need for a diagnosis before kids get services. And I came across a continuum uh, in, in the first year we were developing MIPS. And the continuum that we started to use uh, had four anchor points, healthy, coping, struggling, and unwell. But inevitably, as kids go through life, they'll have hiccups, they'll come up against stresses and transitions, and um, hopefully they'll cope. And the role of parents and the role of teachers is to build resilience and help them cope with whatever's happening in their lives. But we also know that inevitably a percentage of those children are going to start to struggle. And I think the role of teachers and the role of parents and the role of universal services and childcare workers and GPs is to identify those kids as soon as they start to struggle and then build scaffolding around them, build a system of supports, irrespective of what the diagnosis is, to stop them becoming severe and needing tertiary help. Uh, a continuum also fits for the way we look at families. You know, uh, we know that lots of families struggle, that there's stresses in families. Teachers don't need to identify what they are. All they need to do is to say, look, this family is struggling, and then refer to a service system that can sort these out. So uh, it's, been, it's a very attractive proposition to parents because it reduces stigma. Uh, it starts to create a common language uh, among the different professional groups. For the national strategy, we recommended that we get away from diagnoses and start to use the continuum. And very interestingly, the Mental Health Commission also asked us to do a second piece of work, and that is to see whether the continuum was useful alongside diagnosis. So we'll be talking to psychologists and psychiatrists and paediatricians. For example, if a child has a diagnosis of autism, is it useful then to add the continuum? In other words, um, this child has autism but is doing okay. This child has autism but is struggling. That's a very important piece of work that I'm very, very excited about. And if we really can introduce this across the community, parents, providers, then I think we'll have done some good work there. Can we move to the um, National Children's Mental Health and Wellbeing Strategy that uh, you noted that you co-chaired? Can you tell us a little bit about that and the fact that it's the first ever in Australia's history and perhaps, um, as we understand, in, in, in the world? But um, tell us a, li a little bit how that was created and, most importantly, the relevance to schools. Well, that came from the Mental Health Commission. Uh, they really wanted... Uh, I guess, to develop a five or 10 year plan for addressing child mental health. The process was very important. We had a multidisciplinary expert advisory group that you were a member of, uh, and thank you for your contribution. Two working groups, one zero to five, and the second one five to 12. Uh, we had an Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander reference group. We had a national steering committee, which included state governments. And then we did very extensive stakeholder consultation with professionals, with the colleges, organisations and peak bodies, and also consultation with vulnerable and at-risk groups, young people and with parents. So uh, we felt that we got a really good feel throughout those comprehensive consultations and input from the expert advisory groups into what the issues were and what's more important, what the solutions were. So we ended up with um, eight principles uh, um, that the strategy was designed to be child-centred, strength-based, prevention-focused, 
Uh, we had to address equity and access. It had to be a universal approach informed by evidence. The focus had to be on prevention, early intervention, uh, and it had to be needs-based and, and not uh, diagnosis-oriented. So they were important principles. And we ended up with four major focus areas. Um, the first focus area was family and community because child mental health starts in the family and families live in a community. Uh, the second focus point was the service system. The third um, was educational settings, which just reinforced the point that these were very, very important platforms to address these problems. And then the fourth one was uh, um, research uh, evidence and evaluation. It's been just really well received. Um, we've been just so pleased that all that hard work seems to have paid off. Uh, and it's out there now. Um, and as you say, as far as we know, uh, this is the first strategy of its kind anywhere in the world. I'm sure there would be some schools and teachers thinking that this, this might end up being um, added work or a burden um, that's now passed on to teachers. Can you just explain the role that education plays in this, in this um, wellbeing strategy? If teachers and schools feel that, then I'd be disappointed. That's not the role. I think what we hope we have done is to acknowledge the important role of teachers and the important platform that schools represent. And clearly they, they need resourcing. A lot of the recommendations are about additional resourcing there. Uh, so in the end, we want this to be this, the school's model, the teacher's model, not our model. And I think to a large extent we've succeeded. And even the training, we're tweaking that as we go. Um, it, in, in a way, it'll never sort of be final because we're getting feedback all of the time from uh, communities of practice and from the evaluation. So we're responding to teacher needs. And it's interesting that when we ask teachers about uh, their view of mental health, that, as I mentioned before, the vast majority now see child mental health as core business to them. In the next breath, they then say, well, we don't have the confidence and we haven't had the training and we don't have the resources. So that really speaks, I think, to the need. And there really needs to be, in my mind, as a non-educator, a, a focus on child mental health and child development and family functioning and community in undergraduate training, you know, in the university courses so that teachers come to the role with at least some training in this area and then some confidence. If you go back to the question you asked me very early on about the role of teachers, the mental health and wellbeing coordinator will work with the classroom teachers to give them the confidence to uh, trust their instincts, to identify those children that are struggling, and importantly, know what to do. They'll, they'll refer them to the mental health and wellbeing coordinator who has had the training and will act as a liaison between the school and community agencies and community resources. Certainly in my time as a principal, that was always the issue that teachers um, cared, but they just didn't know what to do or where to go. So, so this is a wonderful in, innovation now. So we're working with the Victorian government on this. And um, what's your aspiration um, for, the, for the implementation, I guess, and the growth across schools in Victoria and beyond? My aspiration, I suppose, is... For uh, for MIPS to be mainstreamed, and we're, we're well on the way to doing that. So we did a midterm evaluation uh, earlier this year, and we were just so pleased with the results. 95% of teachers said that it increased the capacity of uh, schools to address mental health issues, and the same number said it increased their confidence in identifying and knowing what to do. 
Uh, and that's exactly what we were hoping. We wanted to get away from programs and increase the capacity of teachers and the capacity of schools. So my aspiration is that teachers will have good undergraduate training. They'll be exposed to um, barriers that children face when they try to learn, whether they're mental health barriers or whether they come from disadvantaged backgrounds. They'll arrive at their teaching role with some training, some knowledge, some confidence in identifying these issues, that schools will have a system within the school once the teacher identifies these issues of knowing what to do with them. And hopefully the community service system will be reorganised to the point where schools will know exactly where to refer children that are struggling. In terms of the Mental Health in Schools program, it's, it's rolling out over the next few years in Victoria. Are there any plans to take this nationally, Frank? We've been really intent on making sure that the um, MIPS in Victoria is of high quality. We've learnt an enormous amount about implementation and the sort of issues that schools face uh, in doing this well. So we just haven't had the, the space uh, or the resources for that matter to go beyond Victoria. In each state, uh, it, it has to be the school's project and not our project. So we're just doing this very slowly, very carefully. But at the end of the day, we, we're ambitious not for this program necessarily, but we're ambitious for every child in every school in the country to fulfil his or her potential and for emerging mental health uh, issues to be identified and addressed as soon as uh, they become apparent, as soon as that child starts to struggle. Uh, and I think that's a great note for us to finish on, Frank. Um, I really want to thank you for um, not just the time you provided for us today, but the work that you've been doing over a lifetime to uh, bring this to prominence and to be able to influence and advocate to government to be able to get these very real and emerging needs and, and growing needs, I suppose, to, to be uh, observed and dealt with. So thanks for everything today. We're going to talk to Georgia now a bit about the actual mechanics of the program and, and uh, how it is working, but uh, your work has been outstanding and pivotal on this, and we really appreciate your time today. Thanks very much, Jim, and I've had some uh, very, very good tutors and, and teachers from the education sector along the way, so I owe them a debt. And, and I, I just want to finish, if I may, by just applauding the job that teachers and principals do, particularly during COVID. I'm just in awe of the efforts that they make uh, to make a difference for their students. You're absolutely right. Thank you very much, Frank. Thanks a lot, Jim. Hi, Georgia. Welcome along. Thanks, Jim. It's great to be here. Your role as the education lead in the Mental Health in Primary Schools um, program is really uh, fundamental. Can you tell us a bit about the program itself and uh, the training that you're providing within the program? The Mental Health in Primary Schools project really emerged from um, some thinking that Frank Oberclade had from the Murdoch Children's Research Institute uh, with the idea that we might avert mental health problems um, transitioning across into adolescence. Um, so we know that um, many mental health problems for, for students or for young people start uh, in primary school and if we can avert them and provide support and provide education and develop really important social emotional learning skills in those early years, then um, we can we have a chance of reducing the prevalence of uh, mental health problems in in high school and beyond. 
So um, my role was to develop the training program alongside that. Um, we started with um, a blank piece of paper, uh, 10 pilot schools across the northwest region of Melbourne, uh, and we worked with them very closely. It was very much a co-design process. We talked to them about some of the models that we'd seen from out of the UK. We asked them the sorts of things that they were dealing with in their schools, um, the things that they needed. And then we went about designing the role and the position description. And from that, we developed the training. So the training is structured as uh, four modules. And those modules are some basic foundational knowledge around mental health literacy. Uh, we then have two core modules. Uh, one is around building capacity, and that very much looks at a whole school approach to mental health and wellbeing, where we ask the coordinators to think about the current profile of their school's approach to uh, mental health and wellbeing, where the gaps and the opportunities might be, and to develop a plan for that going forward. And then our third module is supporting need, and that is really the more targeted support that's provided to the classroom teacher. Um, so this role, the coordinator role within schools, is not a direct one-on-one -on -one role with students. They do do some of that, um, but the real crux of the role is to provide support to staff to be able to um, support their students within the classroom, um, to develop a social-emotional learning curriculum and, and in that way build the capacity of the school together. The final module we have is the communities of practice. So we deepen some of the skills that we teach in the core modules as part of those communities of practice, but we also connect the coordinators um, across the school so they can share experience. Um, so one of the communities of practice we do at least once a term is we bring in other health professionals, um, paediatricians and so on, and we talk about a case within a school and we get the coordinators to bring the details of that case into the room um, and we talk that through and we share, share what we know from our perspectives as a psychologist or as a paediatrician or as a mental health and wellbeing coordinator. So the mental health and wellbeing coordinators in the school are practising teachers. Why practising teachers and not, not somebody with greater expertise? Yeah, so we, we get asked this question a lot. I guess there are a couple of things. The role isn't clinical or therapeutic in its focus. It is there to support and, and really triage and coordinate care for students that need additional support. Um, so they're really managing um, that care pathway for the student and taking that um, task and responsibility away from the classroom teacher who can focus in um, on their students. Um, we've had really strong feedback from the pilot that having an educator in that coordinator role is really one of the keys to the success of the program. It's someone who can talk the talk, understands the pressure in the classroom, they've got knowledge of the curriculum, uh, they can bring instructional practice knowledge in and that's really vital to support teachers who are supporting individual students. But they also understand the pressures around the classroom that exist in schools around timetabling, even finding rooms to run PD, finding time to release staff so they can attend uh, PD that they're developing and how all those things 
um, work within a school. So that's sort of one side of why we think an educator is important. So 100 years ago, when I was a primary school teacher of a very, very large school, I think almost the largest in Australia, I gave the welcome on the first day of the of the term and talked about this to, to the whole staff, about 110 staff, about mental health in students and how we really needed to focus on that. And it would, it would be important to make sure that, you know, all of the things that are in place that you've talked about. So as soon as I finished thinking that I was so clever, um, a teacher stood up and said, I don't know what you're talking about. I didn't train to be a social worker. I'm a teacher. So I tell you that story because I, I guess people listening to this podcast might be thinking now, is this the teacher's job? Yes, and I think um, we do hear that. We did a statewide survey um, when we went into the co-design process for this project and, and what we heard out of that survey was that many teachers felt increased pressure and demand to support students with mental health concerns as well as teaching the social-emotional curriculum in the classroom. I think part of the issue is building confidence and providing skill and resource for teachers to be able to support mental health within the classroom, but also to have structures and resources within the school where they can um, ask for support for that student um, as well. So the coordinator that is part of the Mental Health in Primary Schools program can pick up that care of that student. So one of the things that we look at in the training is the development of the care pathway. We have a specific tool where we record, the coordinators record um, the care support for a student, um, what's going on in the school, whether the student needs to be supported outside of the school. And that part of the role um, relieves that pressure on teachers to have to manage that themselves. So that's one part of it. But also the other side of it is we get the coordinators to run mental health um, PD within their school. It's been a highlight this year, something that we've ha had really positive feedback about. Um, and coming through from our um, surveying with the teachers within the pilot schools, that we've seen an increase in the confidence to identify and manage and know what to do with a student within the classroom um, to give them that support. So I think that goes some way to sort of addressing that issue of, it's not really my role, I don't really have time. We've been able to provide that opportunity um, for the coordinators to support teachers to be able to do that in a, an efficient way, but also to have that extra support from the coordinator themselves. I wonder if, if there's any uh, role in this program to um, teachers who might have wellbeing or mental health issues. Uh, and of course, during the pandemic, we're aware that right across the community, um, People have been speaking more about their own challenges. And so um, have you found issues al along that line um, within the schools that you've been working with? Yes, we have. We've heard from the coordinators that uh, there's a need to look after the teachers as much as to look after the students. And we've done some work within the program uh, at one of our communities of practice around, um, well, for the coordinators looking after themselves so that you know, old adage of putting your oxygen mask on before you put, put it on at anyone else. So making sure that they're um, looking after themselves, they're dealing with a lot, they're holding a lot of, um, you know, complex stuff that's going on for, for many students within schools. Um, but that has filtered through uh, to the teaching staff as well. We developed some additional modules um, last year as part of the COVID pandemic um, and one of those was around teacher wellbeing and we've made that available 
to the coordinators in schools to give them an opportunity to support their teachers um, as much as they're able to support the students as well. So why is it uh, a mental health in primary schools program? What about secondary schools? I I know when Frank was designing um, the approach, he was um, very cognizant of the needs of uh, to to provide support within primary schools. Um, Just going back to that idea that um, a lot of mental health issues or concerns or the risk factors can arise in primary school and if we can um, tackle those and support those through skill development and resourcing and support for students then we have an opportunity to avoid uh, bigger and deeper problems into adolescence. There is a structure within secondary schools through the Victorian Department of Education with mental health practitioners Um, so there already is a program operating at secondary school level slightly different to ours so it does have allied health in those roles Um, and so really the need or the gap was in primary schools so that's why the project has focused specifically in that area. Okay Georgia thanks for your time today it's been um, really enlightening and um, and fantastic to learn of the work that's going on it's something I'm sure that would be of interest to every school and every person working in a school and so uh, it's, it's an issue that's certainly um, not going to go away for us. And so we really thank you for the innovative way that you've taken this on and uh, we hope it continues to grow. Thanks for having me, Jim. Thanks, Jim. If you would like to know more about this program or any of our other episodes, please go to www.education.unimelb.edu.au forward slash talking teaching. Talking Teaching is produced by Zane Kingy and Genevieve Costier. Thanks for listening and see you next time.